Welcome to Sideline Sleuths, a true crime podcast all about the tragic yet fascinating cases no one can seem to get enough of. I'm Megan. And I'm Jasmine. We're so glad you're listening. If you like being an armchair detective, you'll love being a Sideline Sleuth. Today we're going to talk about a few different unrelated murders that happened all over the country, but at different times. What they all have in common is that the victims were all college freshmen at the time of their deaths. First, we're going to talk about the 2014 murder of Tommy Bearson in North Dakota. Then I want to tell you about two murders at Gallaudet University, one in 2000 and the other in 2001. And then lastly, the 1997 murder of Clemson student Brooke Holsenbeck. There has been a conviction in the Gallaudet murders, but both Tommy and Brooke's murders remain unsolved. Tommy was a freshman at North Dakota State University when he went missing. He was last seen at 3.40 a.m. on Saturday, September 20th, 2014, at a friend's house, and his body was discovered three days later in an RV sales lot in Moorhead, Minnesota. He had only been at school for about a month at the time of his death. Moorhead is just over the state line in Minnesota, so it's about three miles or 10 or 11 minutes from the school that he moved to Fargo to attend, and like five miles from the place he was last seen. The Saturday that he went missing, Tommy was planning on driving home to see his parents, but instead they drove to Fargo to try and piece together what happened to their son. It has been more than four years since Tommy was killed, And to date, no arrests have been made in this case. So, Tommy was from Sartell, Minnesota, which, according to Google Maps, is about 180 miles from North Dakota State University campus in Fargo, North Dakota. And since he was a freshman and new to the area, he was still establishing himself and making friends and finding his place there. But at home, Tommy was well-known and well-liked. He was a standout basketball player, a graduate of a small Catholic school, a son, a brother, and a boyfriend. Little information has been released to the public pertaining to Tommy's death. Officially, the cause of death has been released simply as homicidal violence. Police in Moorhead, Minnesota say they often discuss whether or not the undisclosed information should be shared with the public, especially in the fall, nearing the anniversary of Tommy's death, and when students returned to Fargo for the semester. Moorhead Police Chief Shannon Monroe said, We just want to make sure the public knows we're still working on it, and there's still a need for us to keep as much of this case protected as possible. So, if you remember in the Michaela Mitchell case, they didn't release, like, anything except homicidal violence, too. And she ended up being, like, partially dismembered and stuff, so I have no idea. Homicidal violence violence just leaves a lot. Yeah. For you to imagine, and I imagine horrid things. So the autopsy, interviews, evidence, and case documents remain sealed to the public. Moorhead's chief of police said, if the wrong information is out, it can allow people that would be involved in this case to use that information to try and avoid us trying to further advance this case. So when Tommy's body was discovered, his iPhone 5 was missing and his left shoe. Police went to the public for help, hoping to locate the items, but neither were ever found. They also initially asked for information locating a car seen on surveillance footage at the RV lot. However, that car ended up not being related to Tommy's murder. 
Something else that is pretty chilling, but police later determined to be unrelated, was Tommy's last tweet. It was sent at 1.23 a.m. to someone named Cody from Tommy's friend Jake, who actually lived at the house where Tommy was last seen. It said, quote, Dude, it's Jake. Come pick us up. We are so lost and we are going to die. Just get somebody, end quote. So they determined that this wasn't related? Yeah, because Jake was a friend of Tommy's um, from home, so we like, knew him a long time. But Tommy was last seen alive at 3.40 a.m. So I think that's why they said it was unrelated, because that was sent at 1.23. So yeah, he was known to be alive more than two hours after it was sent. But then his body wasn't discovered for three more days at 11 a.m. Ooh. So, and his friend Jake is fine. Yes. So, but the shoe and the phone have never been retrieved. But they did, they were able to determine that the tweet was sent from Tommy's account from Tommy's phone. Oh. Yeah. As of today, the murder of Tommy Beerson remains unsolved. Officer Monroe said, Tommy is not forgotten in our eyes. We're going to continue working on it. Deputy Chief Tori Jacobson, also with the Moorhead Police Department, said that this isn't a cold case and progress is being made, but they are just still limited in what information they can tell us. So... That's good that they don't think it's a cold case. They just can't tell us what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. But no motive has been shared yet revealed. And no persons of interest or anything have ever been named. So it's like if they know something, they're like keeping it really secret. Wow. So he's seen, it's like almost 4 o'clock in the morning and then found three days later in another state. Yes. That's close enough. But close enough, yeah. I don't know. In an RV park? In the parking lot of like a... RV sales lot, so like a RV dealership, with, place with to missing be at a shoe, in the morning. Yeah. missing a shoe and his phone, and they, like we don't know. We don't know, know how that he died. Place. Yeah, or somehow is connected to that. I'm well, assuming that his phone would have some sort of evidence on it, and that's why they haven't found it. Yeah, but I mean, they can subpoena those records, right? Yeah, but like only ingoing and outgoing calls. Right. That's pretty much it. Like they can't see. Things he did on apps like or towers. things like that, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't have so many questions. I think like, they could probably determine locations from his phone, but not what was happening on his phone, I guess. But in, okay, so I look at like, YouTube videos of cases to try to learn how to say people's names and things, and sometimes people just say it wrong. Like in the John Glasgow case, they all can't say the name of the state park. So I'm going to say things how I heard it most frequently said. So if I say something wrong, it's not my fault. It's literally everybody else's. Free pass. In 2000 and 2001, there were two on-campus murders of students at Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. So Gallaudet is a private university specifically for deaf and hard-of-hearing students. A very small number of hearing students who know American Sign Language are admitted alongside their hearing-impaired peers, but it's, like, really limited. And Gallaudet is the world's only university in which all programs and services are specifically designed to accommodate deaf and hard-of-hearing students. It was founded in 1864 by an act of Congress, and Abraham Lincoln signed it into law. I never knew it existed until this. It's really neat that it exists, but in 2000 and 2001... Gallaudet students and staff were living and learning with a murderer. In September of 2000, Eric Plunkett was a college freshman from Burnsville, Minnesota, who had long dreamed of attending this prestigious university. And he was very involved on campus, well-known and well-liked. And when his classmates reported that they hadn't seen or heard from him all day, 
and another student who lived just across the hall from him said that Eric missed a tutoring session that he was planning to attend. Their RA went to check on him. Reportedly, Eric's dorm room door was always unlocked, but that day it wasn't. Inside the RA discovered Eric's lifeless body. He died from blunt force trauma to the face and head. Ultimately, police concluded that he was choked and then beaten to death with a nearby chair. There was significant blood spatter in Eric's dorm, and his murder had the telltale signs of a rage killing, leading investigators to believe that he was killed by somebody he knew. Yeah. So, well, that's it's a like really brutal. Way. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Police quickly turned their focus to another student named Thomas Minch after learning that he was a love interest of Eric's. When recounting the story later, Thomas said, I had told police we were really good friends, but not like best friends, but I had no type of an intimate relationship or any type of interest in him, end quote. Thomas said that he had an alibi, that he was at a theater rehearsal during the time that authorities thought Eric was killed, but a detective with the D.C.'s Metropolitan Police said that Thomas would have still had time to leave the rehearsal and commit the murder, so basically his alibi wasn't good enough. Hmm. Additionally, they learned that Eric had allegedly made some sort of romantic advance toward Thomas recently, who wasn't interested. And they thought that this confrontation might have been a motive for Thomas to kill him. Wow. But prosecutors said that there just wasn't enough evidence and refused to charge him. But police kept him on their radar, and Gallaudet ended up actually removing Thomas as a student. So for unrelated reasons? No, because of I think people were just afraid and there was like Ooh. suspicions and And people can't and, be scared when they're trying to learn. And that's a private school, well so I'm pretty sure meets. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they can do whatever they want. So it just sucks for Thomas that he had this like huge consequence when he's you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. Of course. And he got into this prestigious university and then if he's innocent like, no fault of his own. He was, like, expelled, basically. Yeah. Just because somebody... Discharged. I mean, because... I accused him, yeah. Because a, a boy who ended up dying had a crush on him, allegedly. So... Yeah. He didn't do anything, but I guess look cute that day. Yeah. So, that's guilty of that. But in February of 2001, so, the students have gone home for the semester break. They're coming back. They're, like, starting anew. They probably feel really good about things. Like, Thomas Minch is not there this new semester, so they can, like relax a little bit, but a fire alarm goes off in Cogswell Hall, which is the same dorm that Eric Plunkett lived and died in. So all of the residents have to leave the building. And just so you know, there ended up being like no smoke or anything, no fire. So not really sure why there was a fire alarm going off. Somebody pulled it, I guess, but there was no like real cause to panic. But during the evacuation, while they were trying to clear the building, an RA opened a door and discovered the body of 19-year-old Benjamin Varner. He was from San Antonio. He had been stabbed in the head, back, <gasps> neck, and chest, and his throat was slashed. Oh my gosh, overkill. A brutal murder. In total, he had 17 knife wounds on his body. A lot of the circumstances surrounding Ben's murder were the same as Eric's. There was a significant amount of blood in the room, but... Something different about Ben's is that there was a trail of bloody sneaker prints. I watched an interview about this case, and someone was calling it the silent college killings because all the students at the school are deaf or hard of hearing or hearing impaired in some way. And therefore, when police was were questioning them, they couldn't attest to if they heard any sort of struggle, like any kind of confrontation, if they heard any screaming or anything. 
and that wasn't something I even thought about when I first looked this up, but normally when they interview people, they're like, oh, I heard some kind of commotion. I heard a, in the April Peace case, she was like, I heard a struggle, and then she was dead. And this one is just like, nobody could, sadly, could yeah. tell them anything. So You don't have that. Yeah, it's like another, piece, just a piece you're missing. So in May of 2002, Joseph Mesa, who was also a freshman at Gallaudet University when the murders took place, was found guilty in both of these deaths. And the weird thing is, Joseph was actually the person who first reported Eric Plunkett missing. And he's the one who, like, prompted the RA to go check his room about how the door's always unlocked and today it's locked uh-huh. and he didn't come to tutoring. He's the one who said he wasn't at the tutoring session. I always find it so bizarre when people yeah. insert them into the storyline. Like, they insert themselves into a storyline. When they don't have to or when they're not involved at all. Yeah, like, just, like, I feel like try to avoid attention yeah. as much as possible. But people really, like want to feel important or involved or something. I think that's how we get, like, false confessions or false, like, witness statements because they just want to seem like they're in it. But in this case, he really was in it, and it would have been in his best interest to lay low. But he tells them that he hasn't seen Eric and his door is unusually locked. But he was found guilty of the murder. How did they find... I have so many questions. So there's actually a videotaped confession from Joseph in which he admits to both murders and says he did it because he wanted to rob the victims. So his defense attorney, Ferris Bond, questioned the circumstances surrounding his nearly four-hour confession video, as well as the use and accuracy of the police interpreters. So Joseph and his lawyers tried to use an insanity defense, citing that he suffered from depression and antisocial behaviors for most of his life as a result of the struggles he experienced as a deaf person. They said that Joseph had been diagnosed with IED, intermittent explosive disorder, which is like an impulse control thing where you have a failure to resist aggressive impulses, which can result in like serious assaults or property destruction, verbal aggression, like temper tantrums and like threatening people, actually hurting people, damaging things. So they were trying to say that Joseph did these things because he had this diagnosis. So Joseph's attorney said that he should be sent to a psychiatric hospital instead of a prison. So they're not trying to say he didn't kill them. Yeah. Just that he's like has special circumstances and shouldn't be guilty of murder, I guess, because he didn't necessarily know what was wrong or something? I don't know. Uh, there's a lot. I mean, like, there's some rage in there. Yeah. Like, the, I don't even know if he got money, but... So, as part of his insanity defense, Joseph said that images of these hands wearing black leather, leather gloves, they were hands specifically belonging to a professional wrestler, The Undertaker, he said that he was seeing these images and that the hands were instructing him to kill his classmates. Joseph said that these hands had been signing to him since childhood and had shown him exactly how to kill Ben and Eric. He also, you know, like in cartoons, how they depict like a devil on one shoulder and an angel on another, like telling you what to do and what not to do. He said that was like literally happening to him and the devil on his shoulder was telling him to rob his classmates. And then like the angel on the other shoulder was telling him to resist the devil's commands or something. He went on to say that the hands were also telling him to kill the prosecuting attorney on the case. But the prosecuting attorney said it wasn't insanity. And Joseph was motivated by greed 
and that he planned, carried out, and then carefully covered up the murders with money as his only motivation. So they, like, were not buying that. But uh, Ben Varner's mom said that her son had recently given Joseph $60 to buy Christmas gifts for his friends and family. So that was, like, in December. And then in February, Joseph killed him. So shortly after Eric was murdered, his mother said that Joseph returned several of Eric's belongings to them with a note saying that he had borrowed the items. But later it was determined that he had actually stolen the items from Eric after he killed them. So... He also stole Eric's debit card and used it to make purchases after his death. And now remember that happened in 2000 because like today that's like no. people are not usually that stupid because that's so traceable. Yeah. And like everywhere everywhere you could swipe a debit card there is a camera on you. Uh-huh. So, But in 2000 maybe not so much. So I don't still know. Still super I was weird. 13 in 2000 so I my mom still wrote checks at Walmart at mm. that time. So aging myself right now. So after he killed Ben yeah. Joseph returned to his room several times to get things that he had left at the crime scene, including his jacket and the murder weapon, like the knife. So police zeroed in on Joseph because of a surveillance tape from a bank showing him cashing a forged check written from Ben to him for $650. Like, this guy's mad weird. Like, I know this is 2001, but like... That's so dumb. Like, you're going to kill a guy and then write yourself a check from his bank account for six fifty, And then cash it. And then cash it. I don't know. That just uh, obviously makes people look at you. Yeah. So. I mean, I guess if he had genuinely written a check for you, you could cash it after he dies. I mean, if you were really But it just makes it look suspect as hell. Yeah. So. If it wasn't a forgery, then yeah. it would be fine. But I just feel like. In addition to his hearing impairment, Eric also had cerebral palsy. So it's believed that Joseph selected him because he seemed easy to overpower. But Ben was bigger and stronger, and that's why he had to use a knife to kill him rather than just, like, bludgeoning him to death. So I saw somewhere that it's he, like, like choked Eric, I guess, like, came up behind him and, like, put him in a chokehold, and he fell to the ground, and then that's when he just beat him with the chair. But Ben, he couldn't do it as easily because he was, like, bigger and stronger than Eric, so he had to sneak up on him and stab him to death in order to subdue his 17 times in almost every body And he, like, slashed his throat, too. So it was definitely overkill. I feel like he... There has to be some element of enjoyment. Like, if you just wanted to stab him and get some money. Yeah. Wouldn't you just stab him in a place that he's going to likely just bleed out rather than, like, repeatedly stab him? Yeah. So the jury did not buy the insanity defense even though mental health experts testified that there were no tests available to determine the mental competency of a deaf person on trial. What? Yeah, so I guess because the experts who usually do that are probably hearing and only test or predominantly test hearing defendants. So they still determined that he was competent for trial and was not insane, despite the fact that there were no tests specifically for that. That's a tough one. I feel like we're in a gray area. I feel a little bit bad. Yeah. One juror specifically said that something that he really took into consideration was that Joseph did not mention the gloves directing him to harm people in his confession tape. So he said if he had said that in his initial confession, it would have maybe been more significant to them or more telling, but it's like he confessed and then later he needs a defense. So he's like, oh, but these hands, these gloves are telling me to do it. So ultimately, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He was found guilty of 15 separate charges, including the murder, as well as the related burglaries, robberies, and forgeries. So, six life sentences, and then 90 more years for the murders. So, it's a long time. Yeah. But, I mean... You killed two people. He's a really violent guy. Yeah. 
So Thomas Minch, the first person arrested and then later released for the murders, sued the D.C. Metropolitan Police for $2 million, citing false arrest, false imprisonment, defamation, and intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress. Because, remember, the DA said they didn't have enough to charge him, but police kept him on their radar anyway. And then these, like, suspicions swirling around him led to him being discharged from the school. So that... That sucks a lot. It really, like, ruined Thomas Mitch's life, basically. And he ended up being innocent. So I think it was actually determined that the police acted in good faith and within the scope of their duties. So I don't think that Thomas won that. But I'm not 100% sure. So I mean, it does seem like a really flippant accusation. Like, oh, well, you, he had a question. Yeah, you. so like, you probably killed him. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, but. Sorry, Thomas. So. It was a rough one. Caladette was having a hard year. Yeah. No arrests have been made in the next murder we're going to talk about. The 1997 murder of Clemson University student Brooke Holsenbeck. On February 20th, 1997, Brooke was found dead following a night where she reportedly went out with two male friends, Bryant and Jeff, who wanted to ride some four-wheelers in the mud. The men say that they got stuck, which led them to arguing and basically wrestling in the mud. And they say at the time that this, like, fight breaks loose, Brooke is not present, and that she had just walked off. But detectives say that they don't believe that, and that there was no reason for this young girl to just walk off alone into the dead of night in this, like, I don't know, remote, not like secluded yeah, probably, secluded but enough it's to like, be a, like a muddy field. Muddy, yeah. yeah. Around this noon. strange. Yeah. Like, evening plan. Yeah. That's just in the middle of the night, go ride four-wheelers in the mud. And then Brooke just leaves, and they don't even, like, bat an eye about it. Yeah. Around noon the next day, Brooke's roommate realized that she hadn't returned and reported her missing to the university police. But at almost the exact same time, someone spots Brooke's body floating in Lake Hartwell, not far from the muddy field where she, Bryant, and Jeff had been the night before. So... So Brian and Jeff never say anything about how Brooke just doesn't come back. They just go. They just, just leave, leave her in the field. She walked off. They just leave her there. Like so. At first, it appeared that Brooke had accidentally drowned, but the medical examiner's report concluded that she had been strangled and potentially sexually assaulted <gasps> prior to her death. So, a detective on the case said that there had at least been some sort of sexual activity or altercation leading up to her murder because she had some small lesions and tears in the vaginal area, and some other small abrasions were also found on other parts of her body. Okay, so some indications that it was yeah. some kind of a struggle. Of course. Potentially. The police immediately want to talk to the people who were with her last, Brian and Jeff. But the boys told the detective that Bryant stayed back when the car got stuck and that Jeff left to go get help. And according to the police report, immediately following the incident, investigators noted that Jeff had bite marks on him. So, but he said that the marks were from the fight that he and Bryant had had about their car getting stuck. Uh, in the uh, I'm like, going to get dental records and match it up that's, then. That's the first thing I thought, but I don't think that they did that. And who is, what male is biting another? That just seemed, yes. I mean, Mike Tyson, but like. I don't think that's a dire situation. Yes. I don't think that this is normal or like like typical behavior for two like 18, 19 year old boys. I think that that's Brooke was around that age. So I'm I'm assuming they are as well. Two young men to bite each other in a fight. Yeah. I mean, even if they're going to do some, like, I feel like that's a, like a low blow, like a easy, easy shot to bite someone. Yeah. 
But like you think you're gonna like they're punch demo records, but, yeah. But no, I, as far as I know, they were, didn't they didn't Ted Bundy it, and they didn't match the bite mark to a mouth or anything. What? So. They sh- I mean, because they had her, they could have. Ju- yeah. Yeah. Oh, Brooke. I don't remember if I mentioned this earlier, but so Bryant was actually the one who was friends with Brooke, and not really Jeff. Like Jeff was more his friend than he was Brooke's, and Jeff is the one who ends up with the bite marks, and also. The boys had been drinking prior to them linking up with Brooke. During questioning, Jeff said that while he was walking to go get help, he crossed a bridge and he said that he thought he heard someone call his name. So he stops and looks around, but ultimately doesn't see anything, so he keeps walking. And apparently the bridge is only about 50 yards or so from where Brooke's body ended up being found. The detective said that Bryant also said something really bizarre to him. He said that he watched Brooke's body be pulled from the lake by by investigators and that he just cried while it was happening. So when the detective asked him why he was crying, he said because he just knew that something bad had happened to Brooke. I feel like he should have asked him, why were you there watching? There's so many questions. Like, him just being there... The next day at noon to pull the body, or noon-ish, is odd and unsettling. Like, returning to the scene of the crime. You know how people, like, help, they, they're part of search parties, like, for yes. people that they are responsible so for. Yeah. yeah, so he just, like, goes and, like, sees her body be put out of the lake and just cries. Because and he, has, like, a really emotional reaction yeah. for everyone to see. Yeah. This is, it's super weird. If they were out there late at night, and yeah. then they had this, like, issue with the, but they you know. never reported her missing, so they never were like, we went out there with Brooke, and she didn't come back with us. Like, she just wandered off, and we can't find her. Her roommate reported her missing, and then somebody found her body, like, at the same, same time. time. Yeah. Well, it's so. so suspect. Yeah. Investigators believe that Brooke was killed before the boy's car even got stuck in the mud, and that this argument and going to look for help was just part of the alibi that they created. So, both guys took a polygraph, and the results concluded deception for both of them but unfortunately there was no evidence to connect Bryant or Jeff to her murder except these teeth marks that they neglected to take so though police believe there was enough to prosecute the pair the prosecuting attorneys didn't agree and since her body was found in the lake the water washed away any potential evidence and nothing was found in the muddy field where the three had been prior to her allegedly just walking off so, I mean, like, if there was a sexual assault, the water removed trace evidence of that, I guess. I guess. But, but not necessarily with fingernails. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a sure medical examiner. Yeah. But her body being dumped in the lake is, like, why they can't solve this, I guess. And it rained that night, and then the next day when her body was found, and it continued to rain for a few more days after that. So, like, any evidence that was in the area was washed away, and... Not only that, but the rain caused the lake levels to rise, which flooded the field. So there were no tire marks or footprints or any of that. It was just gone. So then nothing happened. Nobody gets arrested. Neither Bryant nor Jeff were ever charged in her murder or even named as suspects in it. So, wow. But after she was killed, both men moved out of state. Oh, that's not suspicious at all. The lead detective was actually so convinced that they did it that he took a team of people to where Bryant moved in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and kept him under 24-hour surveillance for a month. Respect. 
Yeah. But to date, Brooke's murder, like the murder of Tommy Bearson, remains unsolved. Super upsetting. Yeah. It's just, I mean, maybe there was something wrong with the teeth. Like, Tommy's, we have full. No, no suspect. But Brooks, it's like, you pretty, like, yeah. there are two really good people good for it. And they just didn't. The last people that saw yeah. them, yeah. And then more than that, they failed the poly, which I know that's not admissible, yeah. of course. And I don't but know if I would take a poly. If someone asked me to take a polygraph, I don't think I'd do it because. I, yeah, I'm and I'm a naturally very sweaty yeah. person slash nervous being. And yeah. if you're talking to me about a murder, I don't want to be near you. Yeah. I don't trust. I've seen making yeah. a murderer. I've seen too many things. Yeah. Adnan Syed. I'm just like, don't talk to me about yeah. nothing. I want a lawyer immediately. Yeah. So all these things that we judge people for, like we're like Kristen Bechtold, lawyered up immediately. I would do that. And, and then and we're like, they refused a polygraph. I'd refuse a polygraph. Yeah. And, I'd, it's, I'd, and they also got lawyers early. Like they answered some questions, but not a lot before they had attorneys. I'd advise anybody that I love yeah, and know to, to not do take it, a, to, yeah to get a lawyer and not take a polygraph, but but then we tell people we say like oh that looks questionable, mm, but if you have nothing to hide, why are you doing that? Yeah, but I'd do the exact same thing. So if you have any information regarding the 2014 murder of Tommy Bearson in North Dakota, please contact the Moorhead, Minnesota Police Department at 218-299-5120. The Fargo, North Dakota Police Department at 701-235-4493 or Minnesota's Bureau of Criminal Apprehension at 651-793-7000. If you have any information regarding the 1997 murder of Brooke Holsenbach in South Carolina, please call the Sheriff's Department there at 864-638-4111. Or you can contact South Carolina Crime Stoppers at 1-800-CRIME-SC or text your tip to 274-637. If your tip leads to an arrest in this case, you could be eligible for a $2,000 cash reward. Thank you for listening to Sideline Sleuths. If you have any comments or questions about this case or just feedback about the show in general, you can find us online at facebook.com slash sideline sleuths.